Let me read for us the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, starting at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You that You are the God who deserves all glory. Thank You, Lord, that as Danny reminded us this morning, as You are Creator of all things, all things exist to praise You, to exalt You. All things are dependent upon You. We are dependent upon You this morning, God. I, I need Your grace that my words might encourage and teach and strengthen Your people because of Your Word and Your faithfulness. We need Your Spirit, God, that our hearts might not just hear the truth, but long to do what You have commanded, that we would love You and honor You that you would be glorified through us because all that you have done. We pray that you would do this for the sake of your name and for your glory because of Christ who has come and proclaimed that. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This morning, uh, I want you to start by thinking what motivates you to pray? We've been working our way through Ephesians 3. 14 through 21, and if you remember, the, this whole section, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. He is accounting to them what he is praying for them. And so as we look at this this morning, I want us to think about what motivates Paul's prayer. Just take a minute to think about it, maybe to, to write it down. Why do you pray? Or what motivates you to pray? There's lots of good answers. The circumstances of life probably compel us to prayer. Right? Even unbelieving people or those who uh, would not put their hope in God, at times they recognize their weakness, that they are creatures, and they cry out because they know there is a God. The circumstances of our life, the strain of our life probably motivate us to pray. Our desires for the future, what we want, what we want to come about, what we desire would motivate us to pray. I wonder if as you were thinking of what motivated, motivates you to pray, if the glory of God came to mind. Are you motivated to pray because you long for God to be glorified in the earth? You long for Him to be praised in the earth above all things? I would assume so. I think many of you probably pray because you long for God's name to be proclaimed. 
You might not have articulated it that way or written it down, but you pray for your neighbors. You pray for family members to get saved. And sometimes it's maybe because you know the fear of hell. You know that he who holds the body and soul, not just man who holds the body, is the judge of all mankind. So you fear for them. But if Christ is yours, as Paul has prayed for the Ephesians, that he dwells or that he would dwell in their heart in such a way that he owns all of their life, I would assume you are concerned with the glory of God. You want God to be praised. And in Paul's prayer, it appears to me the glory of God is a motivator for his prayer. We looked at for this reason why he prays. He's praying because of the present circumstance and because of the plan of God for the church. We looked at that in previous weeks. He's praying both because he knows that the church is to proclaim the manifold wisdom of God. He also knows his current suffering, and I assume the suffering of the church is on his mind. And so he prays for them. But in verse 20 and 21, we see what I would say is the motivation for Paul to pray. After Paul accounts to them what he prays, there is an immediate proclamation, or you could say a doxology, a praise to God. That his prayer is motivated and leads to and drives him to proclaim the glory of God. This morning I want to look at these two verses just through this lens to help us see what's there. First, now to him be the glory to God. Second, to him be the glory because he is able to do beyond all that we ask or think. To him be the glory because he has given us the Spirit And to Him be the glory in all generations forever and ever. Paul's motivation is that God would be glorified forever. What has motivated Paul to pray for the Ephesians is his longing for the glory of God to be proclaimed beyond Him. What compels Paul that it is worth being in prison and writing to the Ephesians is that the glory of God is beyond just His present life. He is motivated to bow his knee before the Father in prayer that they would be honoring to God, that God would be gracious to them, and all of this is for the glory of God. Notice just in those first few words, now to him, verse 20 says, now to him, and if you look with me at verse 20, you see Paul does as he often does when you read Paul. He starts to state something, and then he makes prefaces over everything he's saying. He wants to be very clear about what he's saying. You could take out a lot of Paul's writing and get the content. I don't think you should, and if you're bitter with Paul that he adds a bunch of things, your bitterness is with the Holy Spirit who motivated Paul to do so, not Paul. And you don't want to be bitter there. But if you look, you could read Paul's short verses here, or short sentence here. Now to him, and then he starts again in 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Now to him, and then he stops to preface who him is, him who is able, but what Paul is stating, now to him be the glory. His current Desire, his motivation for prayer is that he longs for the glory of God. 
He's praying that these things would happen. Why? Now to God be the glory. Let God be glorified. Paul's prayer is purposed in that he hopes for the glory of God to be accomplished. And as you look at the prayer, you can see that it is God's glory that this prayer would be answered. Notice that the requests are made to God, but they are all of, for God to do, right? He's not praying that the Ephesians would have the power to do something just of their own desire, just of their own strength. He's praying that God would accomplish this. He prays from the very beginning that he may grant this how? According to the riches of his glory. Because he is able, because he can, because he has an abundance of ability, an immeasurable amount of ability, that God would grant this. That he may grant this. And how is he to grant it? By his power through the Spirit. And how are you to have hope that it will be accomplished, if you remember from last week, that you being rooted and grounded in love is a statement that he has rooted you and grounded you. Paul's entire prayer is surrounding what he longs for God to be accomplished. He is the source of all the accomplishment in this. But the request is for the benefit of the Christian. He prays that the believer, the Christian, the Ephesians, would be benefited because of the glory of God and His wealth. Because of the graciousness of God to give them His Spirit. That they would let Christ rule their heart in such a way that He would be glorified in them. Remember that phrase? That to have Christ dwell in your heart, that He would be settled there, that He would make home there. That your life would revolve around Him and His desires and His glory. And Paul prays all of this because he longs for the glory of God. Notice in this, God is not needy for you to do something. You are needy for God to do something. And He does so for His glory. He reminds us that our greatest need is spiritual. In verse 16, that we ought to pursue and that God would grant us by His Spirit, by His power, a heart that Christ is settled in, not in conflict. That we would have true knowledge of His love in verse 19. That that love would manifest more than just intellectual knowledge. That you would know His love, His affection, His care, His sacrifice, His faithfulness. For you, that is beyond just knowing the facts. And in verses 16 through 19, it is very clear this is all accomplished according to Him, for His praise. As Christians in modern America, we can quickly become those who are assumed with pragmatism. We just want to know how to get out of our current circumstance and into better circumstance. We are far more concerned with what is going on around us than what God is doing in the whole world. And that is not, it is not always to our shame. The Bible proclaims we are weak creatures. You are only capable to see what is around you. You can't see all things. You can't know all things. You can't hear all things. You are dependent upon Him who does hear and know all things. 
We take take great comfort in that. And that's what Paul is praying, that we would have the fullness of God or that we would have the ability to dwell with God in such a way that we can see His plans and His purposes for our lives over our thoughts, what we want, what we ask, that that would dominate us. And if you are a believer then you should be overwhelmed with the praise of God. The first thoughts of the Christian life to you should not be, how can I get what I want? It should not be, what can God provide for me? It is not a business negotiation where you are debating with God of what can He offer you. It is a life that lives for His glory because what He has done. And it would be my desire this morning to work through Ephesians 1 through 3 again as we finish it to proclaim to you the truth that is there. But I'm going to have self-control and not do that. I would encourage you to do that and go back and read. And as you read Ephesians 1 through 3, I think you will be compelled by the reality of all he has accomplished, all he has done, and your place in that as a dead sinner revived by the grace and the mercy of God from your rebellion. Your heart longs not to negotiate what you can get from Him, but to praise Him forever. And by God's grace, He knows that He is the greatest thing in the universe. He is not an egomaniac. He is God over all things, the Creator of all things, and deserves to be praised. He is not like us. And in grace, He has even left us, as we are going through Wednesday night, psalms to praise Him and proclaim Him I wanted to read for you this morning Psalm 148 that proclaims again and again the praise of the Lord by all things. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. And He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling His word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees, and all cedars, beasts, and all livestock, creeping things, and flying birds, kings of the earth, and all peoples, princes, and rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above heaven and earth. He has raised up a horn for His people. Praise for all His saints for the people of Israel who are near to Him. Praise the Lord. And if you remember Ephesians 3, it is not just the people of Israel. The mystery has been revealed that not only do His people praise Him, not only has the horn been lifted for the people of Israel, but in Christ, the proclamation of God's grace to all man, both Jew and Gentile, that all may put their hope in Christ for His praise and His glory forever. The motivation for God's glory is a right motivation. 
It should be something that motivates us more often if we rightly think as the psalm proclaims, He is the Creator above all things. He is the owner of all things. It is His. But He doesn't just leave us there to say, now praise Him. He gives us reason. In Ephesians 3.20, He says, now to Him, and now He describes Him, Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. To Him be the glory because He is able to do beyond all that we ask or think. Paul bursts into praise because God is who He is. He is the all-powerful God. He is not limited by your asking or your thinking. He is not needy of your asking or your thinking. He did not create you because He needed you to ask and think. I love Job. And at the end of Job, as Job is counted as a righteous man on earth before his peers, but as he comes to God, he is in pride. And God breaks him at the end of Job and he asks him, where were you when I made all things? He asks some amazing question. I think it's fun to read with your kids. He says, where were you when I made the ostrich stupid? Were you there, Job? Do you understand that plan? This big dumb bird? You get it? You figured it out? It can't even fly. Why did I make it? You don't know. You weren't there. He, I, I often think of this. He's telling Job, put your man pants on, Job, because we're about to communicate in a way that is going to humble you. But God does not normally show His grace in humbling us by comparing to us that we are nothing before Him. In grace, despite that truth which we know, He has proclaimed His grace to us by giving grace. His glory, rather, to us by giving grace. He does not sit above you in proclamation to destroy you. He has sent His Son to die for you. And He is not dependent on what you ask or think. He does all things. All things belong to Him. Romans 11 says it this way, O the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How unscrupulable are His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. But why does Paul say to praise Him here that His glory because He is the one who can do above and beyond all that you ask or think? See, Paul is not saying give God the glory and don't ask or think. He's not saying don't ask anything of Him or don't think about anything. Paul is giving Him the glory because Paul says, I am asking. I am thinking what would be necessary for the church. Paul is responsible with the knowledge he has, but he takes great praise to God in that God is not bound by what Paul has thought or asked. It does not stop Paul from asking, and it does not stop him from thinking, but it causes him to praise God even in his asking and thinking because he knows that God can accomplish beyond all that he asks or thinks. Does the glory of God compel you to ask and think knowing that He can do above and beyond all that you ask and think? 
Do you pray to Him thoughtfully and asking rightly because you know He can do whatever He wills. And He wills and longs for His people to praise Him, to ask and to think. James says, you do not have. Why do you not have? Because you do not ask. He goes on to clarify, sometimes you do ask and you do not have because God is good. He will not give you when you're asking for your pleasures. You ask to have some kind of sinful thing or something that would cause your heart to sin. He is a good and all-wise God. He knows beyond what you ask or think. But he says often you fail to have because you don't ask. You don't pursue Him. He is the Creator of all things. Why is that? Because He needs you to ask? No. But Because he longs for his people to praise him. If you remember from Ephesians, it says that the church displays the manifold wisdom of God. He, he loves his church. He longs for his people to praise him. And so we ask and we think, but we give God glory because he's able to do beyond all that we ask or think. See, when Paul prayed this for the Ephesians... Paul knew they needed this because God had made known and he had proclaimed as Paul worked through all of Ephesians 1 through 3. He knew the plan of God and he knew that the Ephesians had the greatest need is spiritual. And the need of their heart is to be consumed and owned by Christ. And that they ought to comprehend, make theirs to own with all the saints what is the depth and the breadth and the length and the height of the glory of God. That they might know the love of Christ. He knew that was their need. But Paul had no idea that someday you would be sitting in Menifee, listening to these verses, and hopefully compelled by the truth of God that He owns you, that you should give everything to Him, that you long like Paul to bow your knee before the Father. He knew this was true, but he had no idea of the full effect of it. He prayed, but God does beyond all that he asked or thought. Paul knew that God's plan was beyond. He knew the Gentiles would be saved, but he did not know each and every Gentile. He, does not, he did not know like God knows. And God did not wait for his prayer, but he was more than joyful to answer his prayer. God's ability to answer beyond all that we ask or think should not stop us. Like Paul, it should inform us of what he asks. It should inform us of what we ought to think. And it should inform us that he is so good, he is going to do beyond all that we ask or think. How do you picture God? Are you fearful to go to him and ask because you think he will judge you? Because he will condemn you? There is a healthy fear of God. And if, if Christ is not your hope, I would understand why you feel that way. Romans says that all mankind feels that way because the wrath of God is against all unrighteousness. But Christian, that is not true for you. It says you can go to the throne of grace. He is not judging you. He is not condemning you based upon you. He is judging you based upon Christ. And because of His grace, you are His. That's what Ephesians has proclaimed. 
And so I picture it like this. I, I don't go to God like a teenager comes to me. He says, come like a child. It's helpful to think of this. When Lola comes and asks me something foolish, I don't go, Lola, why are you so dumb? Why can't you figure this out? Why can't you get it? I understand that Lola is four years old. She doesn't get that you shouldn't have a lollipop for breakfast. Right? She's going to say, this is good, this should happen, and I'm going to reason with her within reason. And usually, by God's grace, because she loves me, she will submit to that. When she doesn't, in love, I will discipline her, not because I hate her, because I love her, and I'm not going to say, Lola, you can just scream and scream and scream, and eventually you'll get a lollipop. Say, no, I love you, sweetheart. You're not, you're not going to have that. You're not going to always get what you want. You just want to spend it on your pleasures. I don't treat Lola uh, like I probably would treat a teenager who came and asked me, I want a lollipop for breakfast. No. Because a teenager isn't going to go, why, Daddy, and start crying? Because they don't know. They know. They're going to start debating with me. Your law doesn't say I can't have a lollipop. Where is it written down in the house? What are you saying? You're God? Show me in the Bible where it says I'm not allowed to have a lollipop. You got a verse for that, Pastor Dad? Come on. All motivated by Jesus. Show me the no lollipop breakfast verse. Where's your proof text? No. Because how is that child approaching me? They're negotiating. They're trying to manipulate me. They don't have any affection for me. They don't have any desire for me. And my heart, sinfully, is responding in like, no, you want to play that game? We're going on lockdown. No lollipops for anybody. I'm just going to take lollipops out on the driveway. I'm going to crush them under my feet. I'm going to feed them to the pigs. You're going to, we're going to, nobody's going to see a lollipop here for a decade. And what is God's response? Even in our rebellion, Christ died for us. And by His grace, we do not come to Him as the rebellious teenager that thinks we own the world. We come to Him as children, needy and dependent, knowing that our Father loves us. Even if we're asking for foolish things, He is not going to give it to us if it would cause us sin. But He is not going to keep anything good from us. We can praise Him because He is able to do beyond all that we ask or think. We do not make requests of him, and he starts going, I don't know, would this be best? Maybe I should do this. Right? You ever feel that way with your kids? They ask you something, and you're like, I don't know, my heart says no, and then it says yes. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? I don't know what to do. Your father doesn't do that. He knows beyond all that you ask or think. He knows what is good. And so we give Him the glory and we should give Him the glory because He does that. Deuteronomy 29.29 is very helpful in this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. So what does that mean? There are things we don't know that belong to God. Right? But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of His law. You are not without responsibility. There are things you know. Things that God has given to you. There's things you don't know that you should know that are here for you that He wants you to know. You do have responsibility. But realize, you don't have all knowledge. The secret things belong to Him. You request of Him. You don't demand of Him. You, you, we seek to, as we've talked about in Paul's, we seek to request 
to His will. We seek to long for the things He wants for. But no, in those things you ask for, sometimes people treat prayer as negotiation with God in that I know this would be good. This is what I really want. I'm going to Him. And what happens is you, you recognize who dwells in your heart. The desire for this thing or God. I've seen many young single men do this. They pray for a wife and they long for a wife and they want a wife and they convince themselves that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Why is God not giving me the good thing? And their heart becomes bitter. And it is clear who they worship. A wife. The good thing. Not the God who holds all good things. The God who knows above and beyond. It is easy for us to point to that obvious case. But how many times in our lives do we pray things and seek for things and we try to even communicate, I know this is God's will, yet we don't. We ask and we think and we should but we should surrender that not everything belongs to us. The secret things belong to Him. He has made known to us much of the world and salvation and those things that are going on, but the details of life that Christians often want to claim divine knowledge of, they are His. He knows. He knows everything. He knows where you're going to live. He knows where you're going to move. He knows what you're going to own. But you don't get to tell Him You can request, you can ask, but you don't demand of Him. And you know you are by how your heart responds. When you pray and He does not deliver to your demands, do you praise God that He is able to do above and beyond what you ask? Or do you complain to God because He has not done what you asked? Give Him the glory and trust Him like a country song said once, thank God for all the prayers He didn't answer. Thank God for every woman He didn't bring into your life. Thank God for that man or woman He did. Trust Him and the things that are revealed are His. But the secret things belong to Him. Stop dwelling on the things that aren't yours and dwell on the things that are His and you will be content with all He gives you. Because it's His glory, not your demands, that we should praise. And we do know things Right? He follows with a very statement of what we know. He says we give Him the glory because He is able to do beyond all that we ask or think. But we are not without all knowledge, as Deuteronomy says, that we may do the words, that we may know the things that are revealed to us. And so as 1 Peter 5 says, we must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, knowing He knows all things, and cast our anxieties on Him. So when you're not sure, when you're wrestling, whoops, sorry, that got more aggressive. When you're wrestling through the things and how they're doing, sorry, Dave, it's so much more comfortable now and I don't have to keep playing with it. When you feel like that's distracting and why did this happen in my life? But God is in control. He is sovereign over all things, right? Sovereign over the random mic change. So let's go back to where I was. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, when it is proper, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. So everything that is giving you anxiety, what are you to do with it? You are to cast it on him. It's to put it on his shoulders because he is the one who carries all the burdens of everything. He is the one that can carry the burdens. He has no shoulders, but if he did, they are the broadest of shoulders. 
He is the one that can carry all things. And so we lay our anxieties on Him because He cares for you. And He cares for you in such a way that He has made things known to you. Though we give Him glory because He's able to do beyond all that we ask or think, look at verse 20. It says, Now to Him, so glory be to Him, who is able to do far abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And then how does He accomplish that in us? According to the power at work within us. According to His Spirit. To Him be the glory because He has given us the Spirit. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us. Christian, are you aware of the fact that the Spirit of God lives in you? Are you aware of the fact that the Spirit of God is in you? And lots of people would take this and they would shift that to say, you can get what you want. You can have your desires. There's a secret power in you that will allow you to accomplish whatever you want. You can be amazing and famous and glorious. The power is in you. But the power is His. And it is in you for a purpose. It is His power in you so that you might live according to His will. See, the amazing power of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians is that though all people can read the Word of God, all people can hear the Word of God, there are those who long to obey it. The natural man does not understand the things of God. He does not care to obey it. He does not care to hear it. He wants his own desires, and he will agree with it when it gives him his desires, and he will fight it when it doesn't. But the man of the Spirit, the man who has the Spirit of God, longs to obey Christ, longs to obey his word. And so this is not a secret. This is revealed. This is proclaimed that the Spirit of God lives in you. He is able to do what He wills because He has empowered you to do it. It is not hidden. Romans 5, we looked at in small uh, in discipleship groups this week. Verse 5 of Romans 5, it says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then it proclaims, how can you have with confidence this hidden thing that you know has happened because Christ has said it, but you can't see it, how it happened, how it's functioning, how the Spirit's in your heart, that's a secret. You don't get to know. You don't know. But what He does, He pours the love of God into your heart. Your love for Him, that He has loved you and you long to praise Him. You long to live for Him. You have what the natural man cannot have, a desire for obedience. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And he has promised this. In Ezekiel 36, he says that he will put a new heart in his people, a new spirit, and he will give them a spirit that is not a heart of stone, not a teenager that wants to fight with you. But I will put my spirit within you to cause you to walk within my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. To live by the spirit means to live in longing to obey God. It means to live by faith. It's why Paul prayed, let Christ dwell in your heart through faith. Let Him dwell in such a way that everything you have is a filter to Him. Is this what you long for? Is, has He commanded this? Has He given me freedom here? Does He have a desire for me? How can I use my freedom to please Him? Everything. To live by the Spirit is not that you have some hidden power within you so you can get all that you will. The Spirit is not a magic genie. The Spirit is the regenerating power that has changed your heart to long to obey God. That's what Titus says. 
To him be the glory because he has given us the spirit despite who we were. Titus 3 verse 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is your testimony. If you are a Christian, this is what God has proclaimed. This is who you were. But, verse 4 of Titus 3, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, not because you have straightened up your life and you started coming to church and now God is pleased with you. He says, according to His mercy, despite the fact that you're foolish, disobedient, led astray, you're a slave to your passions, you don't care about what God commands, you pass your day in malice and envy, anger and frustration of other people, and desiring what other people have rather than being content with what God has given you. So perfectly describes the world and so perfectly describes our hearts outside of Christ. But the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Not because of what we have done. Not because any righteousness in us. But according to His mercy, His pity on us, His pardon of our sin. And what has He done? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. This is Romans 5, 5. I hope you learned this week in that the love of God has been poured out on your heart. And how do you know? Because when you were weak, when you were ungodly, when you were sinful, and when you were an enemy of God, He died for you. He has reconciled you. Though you were His enemy, though you had declared war against Him in sin with all mankind, you now have peace with God because of Christ. And that peace does not just come with the declaration of peace. He has put the uniform on you. He has given the Spirit in your heart, a heart that longs to obey Him. We give Him the glory because He has not just declared what we should be. He is not just able to do as He wills, but He has in grace given us the will to please Him, to honor Him, to do what He has commanded. Your will is not free. It is enslaved to Christ by the power of the Spirit. Praise God. Praise God that He has been so kind to us. Give God the glory that when you think, I can't do this, He says, I have given you My Spirit. You can. You can live for Christ. That's what it means to live in the Spirit. That's what it means to live in Christ for all things. And so I'd encourage you to read these passages this week. Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5 both talk about how to live or walk in the Spirit. It talks about being filled with the Spirit. And I want to encourage you, what does that look like? Many people in our society will claim they, they have the Spirit, and they have the Spirit because of dramatic things they do. Or they have the Spirit so they don't really listen to anyone. They just kind of do what they want, and they say, the Spirit of God led me to do that. What does the Spirit of God do? It leads you to obey the will of God. And it leads you to love the church. The Spirit of God, He, He leads you because as you are filled with Him, as you, like we talked about with Christ, let Him dwell in your heart, as you surrender all things to Him, then you will love the saints. You will care for them. You will encourage them. You will praise God with them. 
from the heart. You will give thanks to God for everything. For everything. Content and thankful in every situation because what He has accomplished. Galatians says very similar but in the negative. You have the fruit of the Spirit in the positive. You have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You're free to do all these things as much as you want because there is no law against these things. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh and their desires, their old passion. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So not only in Ephesians are we proclaiming the grace of God to one another, are we thankful, but we are not conceited, provoking one another, and envying one another. We by faith live to proclaim God together, and we in repentance repent of how we used to live, malicious and envious, hated by others and hating one another. And so to live by the Spirit means to live with the people of God on earth to proclaim the manifold wisdom of God, as Ephesians has already told us. And He has revealed all of this to us. This is known to us. Praise God that He has not kept this a secret from us, that we're running around saying, how do we please Him? How do we glorify Him? What do we do now that we're saved? He says, now you have the Spirit within you. You hear the truth, you live to obey the truth. And I will empower that and make my manifold wisdom known throughout the earth. That's what he's proclaimed. That is what is to live by the Spirit. I want to remind you from these passages, this is a community work, but notice back in Ephesians 3, 321, what does he say? To Him be the glory in the church. The church is the gathering of the saints, the ecclesia, the people of God together in community. There is the church universal. All Christians will one day be the church. We will all together dwell with Him forever. But there's also the church local. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to the church of Ephesus. So there are now local churches, and those people live together, and it is God's desire that in those local churches the manifold wisdom of God will be made known, and through all the churches in all the earth forever, He will be praised. When I, I, I want to be very clear because our society will misunderstand this, and I know that you understand, but I, I want to be clear. When I say all the churches, I don't mean every church. I, I don't mean your friends and neighbors who gather to worship false gods. All the gathering, all of Christ's, all of His people live to proclaim who He is. They live for His praise and His name. And to Him will be the glory in all the church. Notice it is a specific place. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Notice, as we often think about what can I get from God and what can God give me and how can He fix this situation in my life, we are weak creatures who are going to think that. But His focus is far more than just our temporary lives. For all the glory of God through the church, all the gathering of God's people, now, presently, and forever, the church gathering will proclaim the glory of God. And not just in this generation, for all generations. Christians, let me stereotype you into two camps. And usually, it probably happens around my age, you move from one camp to the other. One generation looks and says, 
if only people were like when my generation was young. If only people had the values. If only they didn't have the distractions. If only they didn't have the things. If only we could go back to when things were really great, really good, really God-honoring and glorifying. The mistake there is glorifying God did not start with your generation. It is not your generation to which the oracles of God were revealed. It was the generation of Abraham, the generations of Abraham. And it is the grace of God that it has been revealed to you. But do you long for the proclamation of your generation and what you have accomplished and what you viewed as life, or do you long for all generations to live to the glory of God? Do you long to give wisdom to the next generation for the sake of the glory of God being proclaimed through all generations? Or do you just want to sit over the current generation and proclaim they're fools, they're not like you, what's their problem? If they could just be like you. No, God has not called you to judge the generations. He is the judge of all men. You are to proclaim the glory of God to all generations, and Christ is faithful to build His church. Young people, most of them, again, I'm stereotyping and I understand that, but they look at the older generation and say, you're just not with it. You just don't understand. You just don't get it. You're so old school. You want to do things your way. You don't want to listen to new things. And often they are right. We are stuck in our ways and our desires, our thoughts, But it is not the newness of things that make them right. It is the God who was never created. It is the glory of God proclaimed from His Word. It is the God who has worked through every generation. And the God that has designed generations to submit and to listen to the generation prior to them that they might know and hear the things of God. And praise God that He is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think. Because many of you, like my parents, did not come from a generation that taught them the things of God. And yet, God did above and beyond all that we asked or thought. He broke into a generation. He broke into a people. And He changed their lives. He changed their hearts. He gave them the Spirit. And our hope is that He would continue to do that for all generations. And we trust, and He does, and He will. And so if you are for God's glory, one, you need to proclaim His glory in all things. You can because you know He is able to do above and beyond all that you ask or think. He is not dependent on you. He has empowered you to do so, to give Him the glory, to praise Him, to live for His glory. And He has called you to do so, not just for your own life, not just for your own pleasure, but for His glory throughout all generations. And I, we have a church that values children, right? We are prolific breeders. We have lots of them. We long for a large generation. But that's not the only generation he is talking about. Do not sell your life for your children. Sell your life for Christ. Yes, I understand that means to love and to care for your children. 
And you are commanded by God to have particular commands fulfilled for your children. But you are also commanded by God to proclaim his truth to all people. You are commanded by God to gather with the saints for the proclamation of the gospel. You are commanded by God to live and to honor and to obey him, the government, authorities over you. There are many commands by God, and our desire is that we would know what he has commanded, and we would seek to live it. And when we are confused, what ought we to do? We ought to think, and we ought to ask, and we ought to thank him that he is able to do beyond all that we ask or think. When you are conflicted in how do you proclaim the glory of God for the next generation, what does that mean for your own children? What does that mean for the church? I understand these are hard questions. I understand it's hard to figure out how much time do I devote to my family? How much time do I devote to church things? How much time do I devote to work? How much time do I devote to other liberties? But it's complicated. But you can ask and you can think and you can trust him that he is able to do beyond all that you ask or think. Filter your whole life through his word. Know those things he has commanded and let the secret things belong to God. Rest on him when you're not sure. Wrestle with those things. But do, Christian, request of him, ask him, and let it all be motivated that the one thing you want out of life, the one thing you desire for this passing, perishing life is that God would get all the glory because he deserves it. It is his. He has been kind. He has given you all you need for life and godliness. Depend on him. Plead with him. Trust him. Praise him. Believe him when he says he has empowered you by his spirit. And live now with the church for his holiness that he might be proclaimed not just in our generation, not just in the next generation, but when we are dead and forgotten, the truth of this word proclaimed by his people will continue to proclaim his glory through every generation. These are lofty goals. Not much pragmatism this morning. Not much you can walk away with and say, this immediate thing needs to change in my life. Maybe, maybe I am doubting the work of the power of the Spirit of God. But Christian, let the conviction of your heart be, I want to live for the glory of Christ in all things. Long for that. Pray for that. And he is faithful to fulfill that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and gracious. We thank you, Father, because uh, we, we know no one else to thank. God, we are thankful that you work through the lives of people. We are thankful that you have created all things. We're thankful that you own all things. We long to thank you in all things. Pray, God, you would help us to have hearts that live for your glory, that you would motivate us to pray not just for the passing desires of our lives, but for your will to come about, for it to be done on earth as it is in heaven, that you would sustain us, that you would provide for us, but that we would live in the truth of the gospel, that we would forgive those who have sinned against us because you have forgiven us of so much that this would all be to your glory and your praise forever and ever. Amen.